All right, friends, Greg Kokel here. Uh, the show is Stand to Reason, and uh, I have two things I want to do to start the show today. One is to read a, a letter to you uh, from someone from a long time ago who was part of our team right in the very beginning. Okay, her name is Kathy, and I. Uh, uh, it's, this is one of those, like, um, in looking back over 30 years, right? And we're doing that this year because this we've just had our 30-year anniversary, May 1st, and so now we're, you know, incorporating things from our history. It's quite an amazing thing, actually, uh, when you think about, when I think about what has happened in 30 years as God has has used us and all the intricacies, the interweaving of events and people and relationships and the the amazing sovereignty of God. You know, there's a, there's probably a mini homily in this where I could talk about, you know, hearing the voice of God and that that whole issue that is has fascinated so many people and has become a part of their their Christian life, though in my view this is not part of the biblical teaching. And uh, and the mini homily would be: Look at all the stuff that God was able to accomplish through stand to reason without us leaning over to hear Him whispering in our ear, because that wasn't happening. It wasn't happening in the, you know, the biblical text either. There were revelations that were special, but it's nothing like the way people characterize things now. We've got to learn to hear the voice of God, listen carefully. He's speaking, but we're not listening, or something like that. We develop this skill, okay? No, look at what God has done, because He's sovereign. He gets His work done, not by whispering in our ear, but by doing what He wants to do. And our job is to just follow His instructions. We have 66 books of instructions um, that help us to understand the directions we ought to go. Okay, so just with that in mind, though, the fact that we're reflecting now on 30 years of um, of, of adventure with God, uh, let me read this short letter to you. Dear Greg, a few weeks ago I received the email reflecting on 30 years of faithful ministry at STR. I've been reflecting on the early days making tapes at Hope Chapel, praying uh, praying with you, with Melinda, Barb, as God began uh, to grow the ministry, and adding Scott to the staff, that would be Scott Klusendorf. Now, Scott's been running his own organization for a long time, I don't know, 10, 12 years, and he was with us for eight years. So um, she's talking about when God, when Scott started with us, all right, and then moving into our own facility, that's when we moved out of Hope Chapel into a facility another church graced us with. So many memories, she writes. It's hard to believe it's over 30 years. And I'm so grateful for the ministry of SGR and your leadership and your vision. It was uh, an honor to be there in the beginning and to still use the tools to share the faith, STR, um, is needed now more than ever before. May God continue to bless you and the entire STR organization for this, uh, for His glory and our good. Peace and blessings, Kathy. That was a very sweet note. Thank you. Quite a history. You're right. It's nice to hear from you, Kathy. Thank you for that, uh, for that card. Um, let's see, what did I want to do next? Okay, well, I took a call in the last show that was about um, human DNA, well, humans and 
and uh, Neanderthals allegedly interbreeding. And uh, I, I, I didn't have a lot to say about this because it's not my field so much, but I had some reflections. And I, as I exited the studio, Amy uh, gave me another piece of information that I didn't quite get because our caller, if you listen to the show, kind of dropped this stuff on me, had to run, laid out the thing, laid the questions out, and then he was going to listen to my response uh, when he got back. What I learned was that is existing human beings that we would all consider true humans, made in the image of God, have in their own DNA um, Neanderthal DNA, you know, pieces of Neanderthal DNA. Now, I don't know what to make of that, to be honest with you. So what that looks like is that because there was interbreeding of humans with Neanderthals, there were humans that there were there were children born that were an amalgam of the two that um, are, are are now possessing DNA of both. Now, I'd given the illustration of uh, a horse and a donkey interbreeding to create a mule, and the mule is something completely distinct. Well, it turns out now that that's not really, it doesn't, apparently, it's not an apt parallel or illustration. And I'm not sure what to do with this now. I guess what I could say is, well, if humans and Neanderthals could interbreed, and we have Neanderthal um, genes in us, then it may be that that Neanderthals were genuinely human in the biblical sense, that they were that they were a kind that was made in the image of God, and uh, and and who knows? I mean, you, you've got. You've got um, human beings now that that have uh, what's the I don't even know the right word, but they have different kind of racial characteristics, hair color, skin color, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because of the uh, populations that have been isolated from others, and then they, it, yet they're still humans, and we can then interbreed and create amalgams because they're all humans, even though they have different characteristics. Okay, blonde-eyed. No, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, or black-haired, brown-eyed, you know, Swedes or Mexicans. So you've got a mixture. Uh, Humans have all types of these characteristics, and they can interbreed. And therefore, we'd have uh, genes from both lines. That's a possibility. Um, that it turns out, from God's perspective, that Neanderthals were just another race of genuine humans made the image of God. I don't know about that. Um, it may turn out that that human—well, I don't know. I, I don't even want to conjecture at much at this point. Um, but there is no reason to believe that if we do have Neanderthal blood, that this means that the biblical account is wrong. Okay. Now I know what the temptation to think is, and that is the temptation is to think is that we are uh, that we there's a phylogenetic chain here. We have evolved, and in the process of evolving, all these genes um, kind of showed up in human beings at the moment. Genes from other races or other hominids that have uh, that have um, gone extinct, Neanderthals. 
Um, the problem is, is that you don't determine whether evolution is true just on the basis of one piece of evidence. The, the problems with the Darwinian model are so immense that this kind of evidence itself is not enough to carry the load. There are so many other difficulties with the notion that mutation and natural selection are responsible for all of the incredible details of the biological realm. You, you can take any part of the human body. You can take the eye, you can take the ear, you can take the nose, you can take clotting blood, you can take a fingernail. And any part of just one, the body of just one living thing, is so unbelievably complex that it beggars the imagination how that complexity could be established through an accidental, non-directed process. Well, some of you might say, well, just because it beggars your imagination doesn't mean it didn't happen. I said, well, it's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't mean it did. What we have to go on is our imagination in these kinds of circumstances. We are looking at possible explanations, and we're looking, and then we say, "Is this mechanism possible? Is it is it possible that this mechanism can accomplish this end?" And my response is, "No, no way, Jose. It's just not going to happen." It takes know-how to build these complex things. The DNA molecule, the DNA that, that we're talking about, that humans have that contains hominid or Neanderthal DNA, that DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is a double helix that is unbelievably complex. It's a book. All these amino acid pairs spell out functions it's code. Code doesn't happen by accident. Okay? It just doesn't. Just like all these words on this page here didn't happen by accident. And this is minor compared to even the most simple amino acid chain that is coded for on the double helix. Okay? So, I'm not even remotely tempted to think that the Darwinian model is somehow upheld by the idea that humans have Neanderthal DNA. It's because the obstacles to that larger program are, are, um, are just un, uh, too big to possibly consider that as an option. It's the insurmountable. That's the looking for the word. The obstacles are insurmountable. And the more we learn about the biological realm, the larger the obstacles loom which is one of the reasons a lot of people who are secular types are looking for other options, because this doesn't work. Okay? So, having said that, let's see. Why don't we go to some of our open mic calls? And uh, I actually should have been looking at this earlier, but... Um, okay, let's go to Katie again. I think we had Katie... Uh, on board. Actually, it was another show maybe you haven't heard from. We'll be playing that later. But Katie from Montana. 
on uh, weeping and gnashing hey, of Greg, teeth. Greg, this is Katie from Montana. Um, I wanted to piggyback off a question you had answered in the second half of your radio show last week about hell um, and what people experience in hell. Do they remember their life? Do they want to be out of hell, um, etc.? Uh, my question is kind of twofold. First, the verses that talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, I've actually recently heard some other apolo- Christian apologists say that those verses are actually not so much talking about the person being and experiencing torment in hell, but more so that they are gnashing their teeth, meaning that they're still in open defiance towards God um, and saying that the interpretation of the phrase gnashing of teeth can often mean spurning. Um, and so, th- so I've heard that interpretation about people in hell are still spurning God, still in open defiance towards him. And I think I've even heard, maybe it was you, maybe someone else say, why... Why is it a bad thing for atheists to think about going to hell when they don't they wouldn't want to be in heaven anyway? They wouldn't want to be with God. They wouldn't want to be with Christ. So they they wouldn't want to go to heaven to be with the one that they spurn mm-hmm. and oppose. So I've heard those reasonings um and then there's the verse I don't, I don't know where it is offhand but where it talks about every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And I think that's talking about judgment day. So my question is when it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but obviously they, the non-believers still go to hell. Does that indicate though, that they've had a change of heart, even though they're in hell, do they have a change of heart or are they still, spurning God in opposition towards him while they're in hell, yet they have a cognitive understanding of the truth, but a heart hasn't changed. Okay, wow, there's a lot there, and just like your prior call that uh, I responded to, uh, it's clear that you've thought through a lot of these issues and done some research. Um, the The passage that you're talking about here, every new shall bow, is in Philippians chapter 2, just for the record, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But um, let's talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. It may be that the word gnashing can uh, indicate a spurning of God or a defiance of God, but what's important is not the range of meaning of a word in a sentence, but what the word seems to, the work the word seems to be doing in the flow of thought of the passage. Now, I don't have the passage right in front of me. This, uh, This weeping and gnashing of teeth is language Jesus used as he describes judgment. They will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, now I just want you to think for a moment about that, Katie. They are thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is an act of judgment. And it isn't just that there are people in hell gnashing their teeth. Um, And that would leave open 
some alternate understanding that maybe this is the word is meant to say they are still even in hell shaking their fist at God. Now they might still be doing that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. And I guess I want to say I I don't think I think it's obvious that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about an act of judgment where somebody is thrown in the outer darkness. This is not a good place to be. That's why they are not just gnashing their teeth, they are weeping. And so if we know they are weeping and they are grinding their teeth in agony, and it, it, then then we know these things are going together. It's a kind of parallelism, right? I uh, was doing a workout a couple weeks ago and my shoulder's been bothering me. And as I did each, I went to extension on each exercise, I'd feel it and I realized I was gritting my teeth. I had to be careful because I thought, no, that's not good to grind your teeth. And I had to relax my jaw. But the reason I was gritting my teeth, clenching, gnashing, if you will, is because I was under stress. I was in pain. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, and I don't see any good reason to think he means otherwise. Now, again, it may be that people are still defiant against God when they are being punished by God. That might be the case. But the question here is, what does this phrase mean? What did Jesus have in mind when he used this phrase? And I think when you look at the frame of reference that he is discussing here, it's a judgment frame of reference. Um, One of the times, I think, is when, when the person is forgiven a debt a big debt, and then he demands a smaller debt to be paid up by uh, by somebody who owes him some money. Then, in the parable, he is he is thrown into outer darkness. I think I got that right. Maybe not, but the point clearly is where it's used. Jesus is using this longer characterization, thrown into outer darkness, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as a a characterization of judgment. And I don't see any reason not to take the gnashing of teeth as going along with the weeping in the place of judgment in outer darkness as an expression of agony, not of defiance. Okay, first issue. The next one uh, you asked about was... um, I never said this, by the way, because this isn't my view. Um, that people have suggested people don't want to go to heaven because they are not suited for being in heaven with the God that they hate. That actually sounds to me like a C.S. Lewis thing um, that he developed out of the uh, the Great Divorce in that book. Now, there may be some merit to that. It, I, I don't hold that view. And um, it just isn't the picture that I have. Now, there might be—it may be the case— that if they were ta- if unregenerate humans were taken into heaven they wouldn't enjoy it because they are not they do not have a glorified resurrected body they are raised from the dead never to die again physically but they don't have a glorified resurrected body they're rather flung into the um outer darkness or into the lake of fire in revelations 20 um it you know it's speculation 
but that's just not my view. I don't, I don't, I don't hold that. I don't deny it's true, but it's not a view that I hold. All right. And um, the last concern here is the phrase that comes out of Philippians two: "Every knee bowing." Okay. And uh, let me find that passage. How, is that Philippians? Ephesians, Philippians. Yeah, it says, let, I'm looking at Philippians. Oh, that's Philippians 3. Okay. So this is a famous passage here, chapter 2, where we are told to be like Jesus. And Jesus was a, an individual who humbled himself, came down from glory, set aside his privileges, and served. And this is a very one of the most clear characterizations of what God has in mind by biblical humility. And uh, and Paul says we should be like that. And as a result, it says, because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, that is, acknowledge, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, um, I take this, by the way, this section where it says, every knee shall bow, this actually comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. And that phrase is used to characterize what people will do to God. And this is a deity of Christ passage, because the verse used to describe God in Isaiah is now used to describe Jesus. And every knee will bow to Jesus, who is God. Um, I never took that as anything more than everyone bowing in subjugation to the one who deserves that kind of uh, honor, even those in hell. They're going to do that now, or those destined for hell. It's 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 not entirely clear in terms of the eschatology when this event takes place. But I think the point is not to try to figure out where do you plug this into the events, the series of events, but that everyone is going to end up being subjected to the authority of Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue, confessing that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Lord. That's all it's saying. I don't think it means that they have a change of heart, um, because it doesn't imply that in the text. It just identifies everyone everywhere eventually is going to say this. And I think Paul is doing that to exalt the person of Jesus. He's saying, look what Jesus did to humble himself, and this is his—he's getting his propers now. He's getting what is due him, the honor that is due him. Okay, and uh, that's all he's saying. I don't think he's saying anything about people having a change of mind, and they're willingly bending the knee. I think, and this would be my encouragement here, encouragement to me personally, and it's something that Jesus, it's parallel, I think, in kind, to something that Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, do not fear, because, because there is nothing that is hidden that will not be made known. And I think the point there, Jesus is saying, in the context of Christians suffering for him, 
that there is going to be a day of reckoning where everything will be revealed, and in a sense, you will be proven right. The world will see what the truth is, and those that betrayed you or uh, uh, put you down or called you names or however they hurt you for Christ's sake will see the truth. And I think that notion in Matthew 10 is is parallel to this notion that we see in Philippians chapter 2, that there will be a day of reckoning such that all of those naysayers will be bowing their knee and declaring, yes, yes, Jesus Christ is the Lord. But, as, but under subjugation, not because they're doing it the way you and I would do it celebrating the Lordship of Christ. All right. So thank you, Katie, for that great question again. Um, let's see. Um, I've got a whole list of these questions. I've tried to find one that... Uh, 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 yeah, let's see what the time is. Uh, no, let me, let's take Paul's question about the Jesus movement in the 70s. Let's take a question about that. Have that. Sorry for not giving you advice. Hello, Greg and Amy and the rest of the STR Ask team. This is Paul from South Louisiana. I am a second generation Christian whose parents were former Catholics. They were saved during the Jesus movement of the 70s. Um, my father was specifically saved out of the charismatic movement which occurred within the Catholic Church. Hmm. So my question is, in your experience, Greg, how has the American church been affected for the good and the bad? Um, how has it been affected to date from the Jesus movement of the 70s? And the second is this, um, how would you advise navigating finding a new church um, a church that is biblically uh, sound, uh, especially with consideration for charismatic expression and worship. Mm. So, just a little background: I am uh, so I'm, I'm looking for a church for the first time, while being mindful of how important doctrine is, mm. and also being mindful that I am in a generation of the church which is confronted by the world on the outside, and on the inside is either doctrinally prideful, that's the term I'm using for people who get their confidence from the doctrinal view that they hold, or they are doctrinally weak, as in they don't have uh, any concern for doctrine, mm. and maybe tied in with that, they can be charismatically, um, it seems wacky, um, going beyond <laughs> things that are what I would think is biblical. Yeah. So what is... What is your advice for navigating finding a new church with within this generation in America uh, while considering those things? Mm. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Paul. And uh, boy, this is an interesting question because I became a Christian in 1973. This September will be 50 years. And the very first church that I walked into two weeks later for a concert on a Friday night was Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. 
and that was the epicenter of the Jesus movement. And if you saw the uh, uh, the movie The Jesus Revolution, of course, that that whole film is about Chuck Smith and uh, Lonnie Frisbee and and uh, Greg Laurie and the whole young crowd of which Laurie was a part at that time that were um, were really created a, a radical movement. Um, in this country. Well, actually, I should rephrase that. They didn't create it. The Holy Spirit created it, I think, but it, they were certainly the epicenter for what the Holy Spirit was doing. A lot going on in Seattle, some huge things going on in the Midwest, in the Chicago area, uh, also in Ohio, but um, there were certain centers that just seemed to be really rocking and rolling, and certainly Southern California was one of them. So what what has what good has come out of that? Well, I think part of the 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 good has uh, has been. Mu- let me back up for a moment. Much of the Jesus movement, from a sociological perspective, was a populist movement. It was to take the take Christian religion kind of out of the the the. Um, the kind of hoity-toity, suit-and-tie crowd that are looking the right way and acting the right way, and I, I mean, in culturally right way, not morally, uh, they, and, 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 to, and to break the mold, so to speak. It was iconoclastic. So my first church, first church I walked into was Calvary Chapel, but that didn't become my church. I went there for a concert. My first church was was uh, I, I went to to um, church on the way for a while, uh, and that was a charismatic four square church. Uh, but I I didn't. That isn't really where I made my home. It was Hope Chapel under Ralph Moore in Hermosa Beach, where I was at for twenty five years at least, and uh, that was the kind of church you could come into. And it was really small when I joined, but it grew rapidly because. Ralph, this is a beach community. It didn't matter whether you're in a bathing suit, whether you're wearing a suit or a bathing suit. <laughs> you know, you can still come in. Whoever will may come. And it was this kind of mentality you see a lot in the movie Jesus Revolution, this breaking of these norms that uh, opened the floodgates for a whole generation of people to come in and hear the gospel and bring a lot of their culture in with it. Okay? And uh, I remember... Um, this is going to sound weird, in a sense, to some of you, but when um, somebody said, yes, we have a contemporary church, this is back then, really, you got a contemporary church? What, what does that mean? We have a guitar. We have a guitar on stage, you know, someone with a guitar. That was such a big break with the, with the old way. That just having a guitar on the stage was a was a statement. Okay, now of course that's bizarre because you know who would who to thunk? Now we have contemporary Christian music and the whole thing that is developed and, and music and worship is really kind of loosened up and adopted a lot of uh, different styles that people have enjoyed and whatever. So these were um, some of the good things that happened. Okay, where we kind of shook off our um, our cultural straitjackets, and uh, some didn't, some just didn't bend very well. But by and large, the church kind of loosened up a bit, and that was good. And 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 the charismatic movement was happening at the same time, and um, and that charismatic movement had an influence in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I have some concerns about that. 
but um, because n- not all charismata, you know, charismatic manifestations are sound. And Paul, you intimated that in your question. Um, and in fact, it turned out my, my my aunt, who was raised in the Catholic Church and then became part of the charismatic Catholic movement, ended up leaving the Catholic Church for theological reasons. And so that was a means by which God moved her out of a theologically unsound environment into a more theologically sound environment in the Protestant tradition. Um, so, so it was. I think it was good that that uh, that the church was shaken up a bit uh, by a bunch of young people who had a whole different set of values and dress and whatever. And so that we were, like I said, it was iconoclastic. We were breaking the mold, so to speak. However, in some cases, the mold broke too much. And in fact, we were just, when I went to church on Sunday with my wife, you know, we were a little late. We just, you know, throwing stuff together and going to church. And she said, well, I'm just going to wear my jeans. I said, that's all right. That's what most people are wearing. And I'm wearing that, so in a nice shirt, whatever. And she said, "Yeah, but I was just always used to wearing a dress to church." Now I think that was kind of a good thing in a way that people viewed going to church and worship and hearing God's word and everything as a a, a noble enough enterprise that they'd want to dress up a little bit for it. And for a long time, I wore a sport coat to church, even though I came out of that era. As I got older, I just had a different sense of things. Not a tie, but a sport coat. I was comfortable in it, and uh, maybe nice jeans. But uh, I, I didn't come in my bathing suit. And uh, I, you know, now I think that would be a little bit too informal. That's my thinking about it. So there was the good thing of kind of breaking, the, breaking those images, those icons, and you know, breaking up the turf a bit. And uh, yet at the same time, it almost became too much. So that's a concern. Also, during that time, there was um, a very strong emphasis on emotion. And this is uh, nothing wrong with that if the tail is not wagging the dog. And that's what ended up happening. During the Jesus movement, you had lots of emotional expression, a lot of vivacity, life, and, and the charismatic movement was filled with that as well. But sometimes the, the things just got out of control. So you have charismatic churches, and you still have this today, that everybody's speaking in tongues out loud. W- wait a minute. What about 1 Corinthians 14? Doesn't it say, don't do that? Doesn't it explicitly say, don't do that? It does. So what's the deal? Well, you just get into this formula in worship, this way of doing things. Your crowd is doing it, and off you go. So there was a, there was a loss of biblical integrity sometimes. There was a regaining of the simple gospel, so to speak, and of relationship with God. That's when the language of relationship really took hold, I think. Having a relationship, we're not just kind of doing church stuff. We are intimately related to God. And Campus Crusade for Christ was... Uh, well, it was actually founded about 10 years before the Jesus movement started, but it really began to flourish and blossom, and discipleship became a huge thing, and uh, Crusade was part of that. They're called a crew now. 
But uh, in any event, that was all part of the dynamic of that time, all good things. But sometimes the discipleship thing got out of hand. And in fact, a lot of former crusade guys went into modes of discipleship that were abusive and authoritarian. We're in charge. God speaks to us. We're going to tell you what to do. And that has stayed. Unfortunately, it shows up in different forms. Right now it's showing up in the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. But there were stages of this all over the last 50 years. We keep going around and round and round and doing the same thing over and over, making the same mistakes. But that door seemed to be opened during the Jesus movement. Um, so those are some of the good things and some of the concerns of, of the Jesus movement. There was a lot of attrition, a lot of people who got caught up in the movement. Jesus talked about this as one of the soils. They received the word with joy, but no root. And when difficulty and hardship and persecution comes up, oh, it's no, no fun anymore off they go. And that happened a lot. That's why it's always good for me to run into somebody, like I did last fall, at uh, Evangelical Theological Society in Denver, that big convention. I ran into a guy who recognized my name, and he thought I went to school with him, like to to uh, seminary. I said, no, I didn't go to seminary then, not those years. Well, wait a minute. We're back and forth, back and forth. And then we finally made the connection. He was at the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse, which was that Christian community that I was part of from 1974 to 1976. And when I said, what's your name? And then he turned his badge around because it had flipped, and there it was. And I said, oh, I know you, Light and Powerhouse. And I could picture immediately what he looked like then, and now I'm looking at him, and, you know, slowly the the old, the young man I could see lurking behind the, the image of the older fellow. You know how that works. And we had a great time talking together. So uh, it's great to run into people who have endured, and they weren't a flash in the pan. Um, but there were a lot of flashes in the pan. So, um, anyway, th- those are some of the things about the Jesus Movement. I, I haven't actually reflected on it very much until just now, but that I think were the good and the bad, all right? Now, as far as finding a new church um, that's biblically sound, uh, it sounded at first, too, Paul, like you were asking, one that has room for charismatic expression. But then you're concerned that some of them get wacky, was the word you used. So, uh, I I am not— s- uh, you know, half of my Christian life I spent in charismatic churches. But to be honest, I'm not that comfortable in them anymore. And uh, the reason is, is that I think oftentimes they are spiritually shallow. Now, this is not uh, a theological comment on the the idea that, say, the spiritual gifts that some people identify as sign gifts, like prophecy or speaking in tongues or miracles or something like that, have have uh, have died away. I, this is I don't believe that. I'm not a cessationalist. That uh, that these uh, a cessationist. <laughs> Funny, I made that mistake because some of charismata is sens- sensationalistic. I'm not a cessationist. I don't think that there's any good theological reason to believe that these gifts. Uh, as a group, have have ceased to function. But I don't think I've ever seen them function in a biblical sense, even in lots and lots of charismatic churches that, that I, I've been a part of, whether there's a manifestation of tongues or a prophetic word or whatever. I don't know that I've ever heard the real thing. 
so there's there's I I do have some um, uh, uncertainty about those the operation of that, and I feel much more comfortable in a in a church that is expressive in their worship and raising their hands and being you know a little a little bit more energetic in their worship. That's fine, and some people think that's what charismatic churches are. I'm fine with that. I like that, as long as it's not distracting. Um, but 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 I, as far as churches that are speaking in tongues and carrying on with that kind of stuff, I that's when I've seen that happen, it has not been biblically sound. So I would not gravitate towards a church that did that a lot. I'd want to gravitate towards a church that had a solid. Um, statement of faith and statement of values, and these are usually available on their website. Here's what we believe. Um, and you'd want to make sure that the convictions that they express there are somewhat thoroughgoing, not just, well, we believe in God, we believe in the Bible, and we believe in Jesus. Three points. No, you want some detail because there's so much ambiguity about all of those concepts now. Exactly what it is they are convinced of, and make sure that that matches your view. Okay, and um, and then you, I think you need to just visit and see how the preaching is actually done. How does this work its way out in the feeding of the flock? Because that's the principal responsibility of the local church is to feed the flock. It isn't to do evangelism in the church service. It isn't do social works in the community. These are they can be done and they're valuable in their own right. But that's not the reason you gather together. The reason you gather together is for the preaching of the Word and encouraging and the building up of the body of Christ to do the works of service, okay? And that's what the focus ought to be. And there, in that circumstance, the fidelity has to be to the text. So you can have people that talk about the Bible all the time. They believe in the Bible and the errant Word of God, but when they do their preaching, they're not consistently faithful to the text. Now, I've been around the block a few times, so I can see things that other people ha- aren't able to see. But there are times when m- my wife and I are at a church, and this is not characteristic of my own, so don't make that application, but where we're kind of looking at each other and saying, how did he get that out of that text? Where did that come from? Really? doesn't seem like it follows from the reading into something, something that's not there. So you want to have a church that that uses the Word properly and well and avoids kind of populist, topical sermons. You know, you want to learn what the Bible actually says about the things the Bible is concerned with. Okay, when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote a whole piece to a group of people to teach them specific things they needed to learn. And so, Generally, I think a healthy church teaching environment is not one that's teaching topically. We're going to talk about the glory of God. We're going to talk about the family. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about kids. Here's the topics, you know, and they give fancy names to it. No, how about um, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 14? That's our sermon for today. (laughs) And then 15 through whatever the next Sunday or something. You don't have to gussy it all up you know, with fancy titles and stuff like that. Let's just learn what Paul was teaching to the Ephesians in that case, or to the Philippians, or to whoever. Um, because that's the way you get the the Word the way it was given, 
and it's much less likely you'll distort that good word by some um, fancy footwork or eisegesis reading into the text something that's not there, okay? Um, and then I think you need to find a church that's something that you are personally comfortable with. There are d- different social groups. People, there's, there's sections of society. Um, people usually hang with people they like, they feel comfortable with because they're like them. We are not excluding people arbitrarily, but we are allowing people to go where they want to go, and generally, birds of a feather flock together. And you'll get a sense of that pretty quickly, Paul. When you're going into church and you like the teaching, you're going to get a sense whether this seems like a community that you feel comfortable in. One other qualification I would add, and I mentioned this in the past, you want a place where you can actually do some good to do something, where you can serve. Your gifts, whatever they are, can be used in the building up of that local body. And if sometimes you have pretty good churches, but the leadership is really very, very... Um, uh, controlling of everything that's going on. And, y- you know, you you can't be useful anywhere. So uh, you don't want a church like that. Well, those are some things. I hope that helps, Paul. Uh, you'd, the question was was a lot of variety to the question, so I hope I hit some of the some of the high points of your concerns. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back for another uh, open mic call after this. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org.
I, I got a whole list of questions here. I'm just trying to figure out which one um, that I want to uh, do. I just got 10 minutes um, uh, to... Um, to speak here, uh, let, let me. Um, okay, well, uh, I am kind of really curious about this one, and uh, it's by Ryan. And so we, I, we, I may not, I may have more time after this one, but this is Ryan who's asking a question about uh, about what we claim to know. Okay, uh, let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Greg, thanks for taking the question. How can we claim to know the unknowable? All right, I guess that's it. Um, I was actually hoping there would be more than just this one sentence. I have that on my sheet. I thought maybe he'd go into more detail, but, well, I don't know anyone who claims to know the unknowable who is using the the concept of knowledge in the same sense in both cases. If we claim to know the unknowable, and we mean knowledge in exactly the same way in each case, then this is a, a contradiction. You, you can't know what is not knowable, all right? <clears throat> Unless we mean something different by the words. Um... To know something could be well. There's actually like three or four ways that we know that senses of knowing something. We can know a fact. Okay, that's propositional knowledge. We can know a person. That's relational knowledge. That's different than factual knowledge. Okay, to have an intimacy with another individual is a entirely different a kind of thing than knowledge. Uh, knowledge. Um, um, of a fact. We can also have knowledge by acquaintance. That is, we are aware of something, all right? Uh, we can also have know-how. That is, we have the ability to do something. I know how to fix a toaster or something like that. Uh, that those are different ways of kinds of knowing, okay? Different categories of of knowledge, if you will, okay? So, uh, it is possible to know by acquaintance someone who is not who's who's who you cannot know completely okay sometimes we say this person is not knowable or or maybe god is not knowable all right um because God is so beyond us, the best we can do in describing God or the or God's revelation of Himself is by some parallel or metaphor. God is like a father, so we call him Father, because he calls himself Father. But he's not really a father. It's just that's the closest we could get. He's beyond those kinds of categories. Uh, some will say that every characterization of God in the Bible is like that. It's an approximation. But ultimately, and most deeply, God is not knowable by us because He's the infinite and we're the finite. That would be the way the argument goes. But notice, though, that the the knowledge category that's being described there is different than the knowledge category that that uh, that many of us would would um, 
characterize that we're experiencing when we know a person or have a relationship with God. So it could be that we know God. We have a relationship with Him. We know things about Him. Um, we, 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 can, we can participate in functions that, that are meaningful regarding Him. So we could have different types of knowledge, but in an ultimate sense, God is not thoroughly and completely knowable. So what I'm saying is that someone could say that they know the unknowable, and it's not a contradiction, if the way they are referring to them knowing that thing is a different sense than the way they don't know Him. All right? The Law of Non-Contradiction says uh, that A cannot be not A at the same time and in the same way. Okay, and it's the in the same way that I'm talking about now. If somebody said, for example, that um, uh, oh gosh, who's the, Napoleon, the little general, Napoleon was a big man, but he was not a big man. Well, that sounds like a contradiction. Unless you, when you unpack it, you find out the person means that Napoleon was a big man in history, but he was not a big man in physical stature. He was a short person. Okay, well then when you unpack it and realize that you're using the concept of big man in a different sense in both cases, then it's not a contradiction. So I'm just offering some alternatives here of understanding this claim to know the unknowable. Unfortunately, Ryan didn't give us any more information, so I'm just speculating on what he might be responding to, okay? How can we claim to know the unknowable? And if somebody is just making that claim and doesn't unpack it, it does seem like a contradiction. Now, it might be. Here's the other alternative. What Ryan might be saying is that um, there are things that, uh, according to his understanding, his conviction, can't be known. So how can you say you know them? There are a lot of people who think scientific information can be known. But spiritual stuff? No, that, that's just a, you know, a shot in the dark, a guess, a leap of faith. Okay? Now, if then they, are, they have the conviction that religious truths or claims cannot be known to be true, well, then when you say, I know them to be true, then you are, say you're knowing something that is not knowable. But it's only not knowable because the person who hears the claim has committed that whole field to unknowability. But why? That's my question. And that might be what, what's at the, the heart of this, that you guys claim to know things that can't be known. And I certainly have heard variations of this challenge before. But now I want to ask the question, why do you think that things unrelated to empirical knowledge can't be known? It turns out, by the way, there, are, are, there is a host of things that we know, and we know that we know, even though it is unrelated to empirical knowledge. I know the thoughts I am thinking at this moment. And I do not know that because I can feel them, 
hear them, taste them, touch them. Feel, hear, taste, touch. What am I missing? Smell. (laughs) I don't have smelly thoughts. I'm not using my senses to know my thoughts, but I know them. I have direct access to them. I don't need any immediate access. I have direct access. I know them directly. Okay, now, it seems to me that's just one category. There are a whole bunch of things that we know that uh, are, are truths about the way the world is that has nothing to do with that have nothing to do with physical reality. So why would somebody assert, if that's what's being asserted here, that things about religion can never be known? They are unknowable. Morality is unknowable. Why would you say that? Why would you think that's the case? And that's what I would like to ask him if that's the the issue that Ryan is dealing with here. Okay? Hard to tell because we're not here talking with Ryan. But that's the best I could do with what I got. All right, there's my music. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I'm Greg Kokel. For Stand to Reason, give them heaven. Bye-bye.